Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. Shana Tova and Happy New Year to all those celebrating. The Jewish High Holidays, and in particular the Days of Awe, are upon us, which are traditionally a time for deep introspection. And so I thought it'd be fitting to have back with us Israel Policy Forum's very own Chief Policy Officer, Michael Koplow, and Shira Efron, IPF's Diana Guilford Glazer Foundation Director of Policy Research, to deeply reflect on the big issues of our day. Last week's Oslo Accords anniversary, the Israeli Supreme Court versus the Israeli government, the upcoming meeting later this week between President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and of course, the potential for a normalization deal between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the United States. But first, a few thoughts from me. So all eyes in Israel this week will actually be focused on the U.S. and Prime Minister Netanyahu's coast-to-coast eight-day trip, including travel days. We'll be previewing some of it with Shira and Michael in just a minute, but it's worth highlighting that in a direct continuation of everything we've seen inside Israel over the past 37 weeks, major demonstrations by Israelis and American Jews against the Israeli Prime Minister are very much expected. Let that sentence linger in your mind for just a moment. Okay, Netanyahu already fired the first proverbial shot last night on the tarmac of Ben Gurion Airport before he took off, telling the media that the, quote, demonstrators have joined forces with Iran and the PLO, and that it was unimaginable that they would, quote, again, slander Israel before the nations. His later clarification did little to clarify things. And in all honesty, if you watch the video of the press gaggle on the tarmac, this wasn't a slip of the tongue, but rather a premeditated soundbite that he knew would cause waves. His motive is pretty clear, to delegitimize them, i.e. the protesters, inside his base back at home, and also among right-wingers watching on in America too, well before images of the demos in San Francisco and New York go viral and likely dominate the coverage in the coming days. People are going to hear a lot about the Israeli protest movement again in the coming days, but it's worth remembering two key points. Number one, they represent the vast majority of the Israeli public, according to every and any poll taken over the past eight months, and just by the sheer millions of Israelis who have taken to the streets week after week after week, first in the rain and cold of winter, and now in the heat and sweat of summer, and pretty soon once again in the cold and rain. They are the majority, make no mistake. And contra what Netanyahu wants to project, they're not protesting against Israel, but against this far-right Israeli government. Huge, huge difference. Second point, the protest movement has been extremely, extremely successful. Beyond what anyone thought was possible in early January, and despite the reversal, yes, in late July, with the passage of the Reasonableness Bill, uh, that was the first bill passed as part of the overall judicial overhaul package. But don't take my word for it. This is what Netanyahu's own national security advisor, Tzachia Negbi, told Channel 12 just a few weeks ago. Again, we quote, without doubt, it was because of the protests that the original plans for the entire judicial overhaul were stopped. It's a fact, Hanegbi said. Ali Adeli, head of the ultra-Orthodox Shas party and a close Netanyahu coalition ally, said the exact same thing in an interview last week. So again, make no mistake, the protests in Israel are continuing, as we saw just last night in a mass protest march in Tel Aviv. They were the only thing able to stop and deter 
this government, and they will continue to be the central effective deterrent, upholding the independence of the judicial system, and yes, Israeli democracy. They need everyone's support in Israel, on the streets of Midtown Manhattan and Silicon Valley, and from Washington, D.C., too. Let's get to Michael Koplow and Shira Efron. Hi, Michael. Hi, Shira. Shana Tova. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Shana Tova to you both. Thank you, Neri. Shana Tova. Uh, so you were both on last time, way back in June, uh, which seems like a lifetime ago, given the pace of events uh, of recent months. So how was everyone's summer and how are the high holidays treating you so far? Michael. Summer was good. It's crazy to me that the three of us haven't done this podcast since June because I've seen you both in the flesh <laughs> since, uh, since, since we've done the podcast. So I feel like we've had all sorts of discussions, uh, kind of wild to me. It's been, it's been so long since we had these discussions for the, the benefit of the listening public. Uh, my summer was good. I had a nice break at the end, got to do a whole bunch of hiking and outdoor stuff in Northern New England, which is always lovely. And, uh, my Rosh Hashanah was, was great and relaxing, lovely fall weather here in DC. And now we are back to the craziness. <laughs> yes, the craziness of uh, the Israel Policy Pod, but also what we talk about on the Israel Policy Pod. Shira, how was your most of summer? Rosh Hashanah? Yeah, uh, Rosh Hashanah was great. Um, this summer, I got to tell you, it's my first August. It was my first August and most of July in Israel in I don't know how many years. 20? I'm so sorry. 25? Ever? Uh, not sure. It's an experience. Uh, uh, it's very hot here. It's very hot. So um, so it, it, it was interesting, but it was nice overall. And um, the weather is finally getting better at night. And I did see you both multiple times over the summer. So I can't believe we haven't spoken since then, since June. But it's good to be back here. How was your summer, Neri? Uh, my summer, as uh, I think the listeners know, because I was uh, churning out podcasts for, for most of it, uh, was very busy, very hectic, covering everything happening uh, in Israel throughout this uh, throughout the summer. But I did manage to get away uh, in late August to an unnamed European capital, which uh, was not as hot as Israel, although it was, was still pretty hot or too hot for my tastes. Um, and yeah, and this past weekend was a, a proper long weekend for the holiday here in Israel. So uh, it's a pretty odd feeling to begin a week on a Monday. Uh, I haven't had that feeling in, in quite a long time. So it, it took a little while to get going uh, this morning, but uh, very happy to have you both back on. Uh, the people were demanding uh, Michael and Shira. So I'm happy we can, we can give them what they want. Um, <laughs> people, people are demanding a lot of stuff these days. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad this, this seems like a, like a demand that can actually be fulfilled. A demand that can actually be fulfilled and also, uh, a demand that goes uh, along with the democratic majority, I believe, uh, in, in, in this country and, and the world, <laughs> uh, unlike certain, certain other gambits, uh, which we will get into. Um, so a lot to cover, as always. And just FYI for our listeners, we're recording this on Monday. Uh, but I wanted to start here with a look back at the two big events of last week. Uh, first and foremost, the 30th anniversary 
of the signing of the Oslo Accords uh, on the White House lawn. Uh, last episode, obviously, I, I hosted uh, Martin Indyk for a really great deep dive, uh, looking back and also up to the present day of, of what that day meant um, way back in September 13th, 1993. But uh, Michael, let's start with you. And especially given the special relationship that Israel Policy Forum has uh, with that time period and really then-Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, uh, what was going through your mind last week uh, as we reached uh, the milestone date of 30 years to Oslo? I think most people listening to this podcast probably know, or maybe don't, but (laughs) hopefully know, that should know exactly, that Israel Policy Forum was founded on the day of the of the Oslo handshake at the behest of Prime Minister Rabin. And so this is an organization that has has obviously a soft spot for Rabin, as do I. And last week, there were all sorts of retrospectives talking about how Oslo has failed, how the Oslo era is over, how it's time to move on. I understand all those perspectives, <laughs> but... To me, what's important is that Rabin himself and the Oslo process were premised effectively on this trade where Israel would give the create the Palestinian Authority and give the Palestinian Authority an increasing amount of control in return for greater security and and particularly if uh, the, the 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 cabinet the cabinet talks uh, before Oslo were recently declassified, and so uh, we can now see what Rabin's thinking was on this behind closed doors. And he was very adamant that, despite all of the concerns about Yasser Arafat, despite all of the concerns and history of terrorism on the part of the PLO that presumably were going to, in some ways, transfer over to the PA, Rabin was very clear that he saw the PA and empowering the PA as the best and perhaps only way to prevent terrorism from much more radical groups such as Hamas and Islamic Jihad. And uh, and he, he viewed this as a worthy trade. And I think that that's worth remembering today because in a lot of ways, it's it's getting lost. You know, we we have all sorts of concerns about the PA, about Mahmoud Abbas, whether it is his very recent anti-Semitic remarks, whether it's the non-democratic governance, the corruption, all the things that everybody's very, very familiar with. And we have an Israeli government now where some ministers, looking at you, Batalos Smotrich in particular, um, openly talk about the PA as the enemy and as something that needs to be collapsed and as a terrorist organization. And Rabin, I think, had it right. He, he understood the, the limitations and he understood the risks, but also he understood that the PA was better than the alternative and that what was needed was to work to strengthen it and give it some measures of sovereignty. And that if you do that, it would be able to hopefully perform well and also protect Israel's security. And to me, that basic formula has not changed. And I think that's that's what I would hope people are taking away from 30 years of Oslo, that for all the ways in which things have gone wrong, that basic formula still exists. And it's worth remembering because uh, if the Oslo formula and the Oslo process is completely blown up by this Israeli government or by, by any other party, 
I think Israel is going to find itself in a bind that it really hasn't had to deal with for three decades. Uh, couldn't agree more. More on that in a second. But Shira, I wanted to get your thoughts first. Uh, how did last week's anniversary milestone uh, find you? So before I, if, if it's okay, before I tell you where it found me, um, I, I agree with Michael 100%. I think what's interesting is that I started hearing and reading from voices on the right, um, people saying that Oslo failed, but the existence of Oslo did contribute to Israel's national security. And I think that's interesting. And I think that's also part of the issue with Oslo because the, the separation from the Palestinians uh, uh, within which 95% of the Palestinian population uh, are uh, mostly governed by the Palestinian Authority was a good thing for Israel, right? And it's a thing that also the right uh, recognizes and acknowledges, um, obviating the need, you know, Israel's uh, need to uh, for direct control provide basic services to this population um, and also in a sense sort of stopping the or at least for now right this is like a stop gap between uh, Israel and, and the Palestinians turning into a bi-national uh, state uh, so I think this is something that I think it's interesting that also the right uh, recognizes but another framing that I'm reading would be well the right the, another good thing about Oslo is that that in its failure I don't thing it, I, I agree with Michael's analysis when we talk about failure we, we talk about something uh, different but they said that in, in its failure it uh, helped um, illustrate that there's no partner and that's useful too because then we don't have to make these uh, uh, further concessions that were expected so in a sense there's you know what Oslo uh, the initial steps uh, achieved but the process itself um, helped in the in the right wing sort of prison lens, how they look at things, it, it helps reinforce their um, narrative, um, and also the narrative that you um, that Israel will only be responsible for its own security, right? And therefore, uh, the PA or whatever entity is uh, controlling the Palestinians cannot be uh, responsible and 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 lie, you know the accountable uh, for having arms. So I think that's a very interesting way of spinning it, uh, the reality. Mm -hmm. um, but clearly Oslo did not die. And I think maybe, maybe you know, trying to be positive for Rosh Hashanah, that even the right sees advantages of the process and the, and the, the paradigm shift that Oslo brought, they see, they see advantages to that also. Um, well, I think, I think it's true that the Israeli right uh, wants to have, have its cake and, and eat it too. That uh, they even before Oslo, but especially during Oslo, they uh, they tried to derail it and torpedo it uh, even before it eventually the process at least or the peace talks did collapse. Uh, and yet, uh, for twenty or thirty odd years, uh, they have not undone Oslo uh, for very good reasons. And so, uh, as Michael mentioned, even this far right, the farthest right Israeli government. Uh, made a decision that is yet to implement, but it made a decision in the cabinet a few weeks ago saying that it would work to bolster and support the Palestinian Authority. Because even this government uh, in Israel knows that the alternative uh, to the PA and to the entity that Oslo created is either Hamas or chaos or both. 
Uh, and so, right, the, right. But of course, then we 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 hear uh, from those who oppose, um, you know, transferring I don't know armored vehicles, right, to the PA, that this means arming them, and so so even the critics, um, of course, you when you're in uh, the decision maker's position, and Netanyahu has been a decision maker for a long time. The fact is that if Oslo was so bad, they had so many opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but to shift uh, away from Oslo, and no one, no one uh, has done so. No one has done so. Um, and just on my end, uh, I swear Michael and I did not coordinate this in advance. That would be a, a bit too clever for Israel Policy Pod. But I also wanted to highlight the uh, <laughs> the cabinet uh, meeting minutes from August thirtieth, nineteen ninety three, two weeks before the actual agreement was signed, where the Rabin government actually convened for, I think, five hours to essentially deliberate and then vote on uh, whether approving this uh, this agreement with the with the Palestine Liberation Organization, with the Yasser Arafat. And I, I read all 80 pages uh, of these declassified minutes, and they are, uh, they are utterly fascinating. Um, and contrary to, to popular opinion, uh, the Rabin cabinet was extremely clear-eyed and realistic and very much not naive about what it was uh, embarking upon, uh, but that the real risks, uh, which they took seriously, were outweighed by, as Michael said, the potential gains, the upside of of entering in this into this agreement. Um, and I jotted down two quotes that really stuck out with me that still resonate in the present. Uh, one by uh, then Foreign Minister Shimon Peres, where he he told the cabinet, uh, "Suppose the PLO disappears, what will happen then? Who will we talk to about what shall we negotiate? Who will we negotiate with?" Right. So still very very relevant. And then uh, Chaim Ramon, uh, then the Health Minister from the Labor Party, uh, went even further and he said, "In this agreement, we made an alliance with the PLO." A common interest was created between us and the PLO to fight against the extremist elements and against the enemies of peace from all directions. So again, it's still true that Israel and what became of the PLO in in the territories, the Palestinian Authority, are still in a common fight against the extremists uh, on both sides and uphold security coordination still. uh, And that, like we said, even this uh, current Israeli government uh, has said that it wants to bolster the PA. So uh, I found that very interesting. Uh, definitely not a, uh, or not just a historical document, but also one that still reverberates uh, in the present. Right. But Mary, if I may answer the second part of your mm-hmm. question, which, which was where uh, you, uh, the anniversary caught me. So I was actually in Washington, D.C., and I was at the uh, Congressional Visitors Center uh, moderating a panel um, that was hosted by the Atlantic Council, the N7 Initiative, with uh, with a member of Congress, with uh, Emirati Ambassador uh, Yusuf Alutaiba, Ambassador of the United States, um, and a representative uh, from uh, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. Um, and it was interesting because the event was to mark the anniversary of the Abraham Accords. Mm. Um, I wasn't there for the whole event, but at least in our panel, I was I was the moderator, so <laughs> I took the liberty to also uh, mention that we are also marking the 30th anniversary of Oslo, which was the same day. Mm-hmm. And um, I asked the question about the Palestinians: How can uh, further norm- normalization um, assist the Palestinians? Um, 
you know, it, it, it was interesting because uh, the response from, from the panelists was sort of, you know, the, panel, the Palestinians have to take care of their own uh, business. We can do the job for them. It's tough work and they have to do it. Um, and sort of related to this, um, there was an audience question that asked, you know, to the uh, Emirati ambassador, uh, his, uh, his Excellency El Taiba asked, um, in terms of the Palestinians, you, you uh, UAE, you conditioned sort of, you, you, you posited a very clear choice to the Israeli public, annexation or normalization. And what do you do with Israel's uh, policy today of uh, de facto uh, progressing on annexation in the West Bank? And he sort of said, you know, we had leverage at the time. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, uh, it it was timed. We had a time frame for this condition. Israel gave us the commitment for a certain uh, uh, um, four years. For yeah, four years, and uh, times is come, you know, and and we we don't have any more leverage, and that was it. Uh, so I think that was that was a bit telling of you know. What are, what are we celebrating today, the 30th, 30th uh, year anniversary of Oslo or uh, the three years to the Abraham Accords? And Shira, I think this is, to my, to my knowledge, the first time that he or any Emirati official confirmed the, the, the expiration date, right? Um, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I, think, I, think, I think you made some news there. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> he made the news. I just asked the question. Well, you know, with your, with your problem. So, well done. Um, That's not how journalists uh, view it, by the way. If, if somebody, if you pose yeah. a question and somebody tells you something that makes news, then you add. It's your scoop. It's well, I'm not a journalist, so. Uh, better. <laughs> Should be very happy about that. Um, but no, it is, it is telling. It is telling that uh, this is where the quote unquote Arab Israeli peace process, or whatever you want to call it, has, has reached, uh, where. Uh, the last agreement, the Abraham Accords, was uh, essentially please, please, please don't annex the West Bank. Even though, as you said, it's you know de facto progressing. Um, well, we'll get into uh, a potential future Saudi deal in a second, and, and what that may mean for the Palestinians. Uh, I wanted to go touch on the other big event of last week, which was uh, the historic Supreme Court hearing. Uh, up in Jerusalem on the legality or not of the reasonableness bill, which was, of course, the first judicial overhaul bill passed by the Netanyahu government in late July, which stripped the court itself of judicial oversight powers over government decisions. So, Michael, uh, let's get your thoughts first regarding the marathon 13-hour hearing, uh, the headlines that were made by the judges and also the lawyers from both sides. Uh, what did you think? The the headline I think that uh, crowded everything else out was the government's attorney, not the attorney general, but, yes. uh, but the government's privately hired attorney, crashing the Declaration of Independence as uh, a hasty document signed by <laughs> by a bunch of unelected representatives. So you know that was uh, I, I, the truth is that was I think in many ways revealing. I I, I don't think that was I don't think that was a slip up or uh, or that he misspoke. I think that actually reflects the way in which many of the folks behind the judicial overhaul do indeed think of the Declaration of Independence. But leaving that, leaving that aside, even though uh, it was very newsworthy, I think the most important thing that came out of it was 
And, and I should say I was uh, on, on Tuesday, I was on a plane to the West Coast. Uh, so I did not I did not actually um, listen to any of the hearings live. Uh, all, all I read was the was the coverage afterward. Uh, although I'll confess that even had I not been on a plane to the West Coast, I'm not sure I would have been up for 13 hours of, uh, of hearings in, in very, very legalese Hebrew. Um, right. But from, you know, from 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 all the coverage, it seems to me that the most newsworthy part is that the judges unanimously defended their prerogative to have oversight over basic laws. And that's important because people will remember that way back in January when Yariv Levine laid out his program, uh, one of his five major elements was to eliminate the Supreme Court's ability to have any oversight over basic laws. So, you know, they very much are standing up for that prerogative. Now, does that mean that they're going to strike the reasonableness law down? I don't think that they will. Um, I don't recall if I've written this, but I've, I've said it to a number of audiences over the past couple of months. I, I've never thought that they were going to go that far to actually strike down the reasonableness law, particularly because it was passed as an amendment to the basic law of the judiciary. I have always thought, and I still continue to think, that they will narrow the legislation and say it's valid, but it was passed too broadly. You know, it perhaps uh, is okay to to get rid of the reasonableness standard as applies to full decisions of the cabinet, but uh, perhaps it doesn't make sense to do it when you're talking about decisions of individual ministers, or perhaps it doesn't make sense uh, if you're talking about oversight over government appointments. I think that they will they will find some sort of Solomonic path here, where they can say we are not striking down a basic law, um, and so we, you know, we have not we have not used what folks on the right consider to be our nuclear option. Um, but by the same token, uh, what was passed was way too broad, and and it needs to be narrowed in, in some way. And I think that that also um, has the if you're thinking of this sort of politically and the court wanting to defend its prerogative, prerogatives. That also has the advantage of putting the government back on the defensive because so much of the government's rhetoric in the lead up to the hearing and even after the hearing, um, and in some cases during the mm-hmm. hearing, uh, if we're talking about some Kharodman, so much of the rhetoric has been challenging the idea that the Supreme Court can can have any oversight over basic laws at all. And so I, I don't think that the court is going to give the government any excuse to get people riled up over that aspect. I think that they're, they're not going to strike the whole thing down in its entirety and, and they'll find a way to put the pressure back on the government to then try to make an argument that what the Supreme Court did was so radical that, uh, that the government doesn't have to abide by it. And um, indeed, that will, be, that will be a move that is opposed by most Israelis. And I'm sure the justices of the court, aside from considering the actual legal merits of the argument, understand very well the political environment and um, my hunch, just like justices here in the United States, is that they are going to take that into account and, uh, and, and do what they can to craft a decision that has the most support from the, you know, the, the highest possible number of justices on the court and that also uh, puts the government back on, back on its heels a bit. Shira, I know you were in Washington last week, uh, but what did you make of uh, what you saw coming out of the hearings at the Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree with Michael. I think some people had expected, um, depending where you are, right, had hoped that the the court would strike the whole thing down. I I never thought this would be realistic, and I continue to agree. It's not. Um, what's what type of a solution? Narrow it or not? You know, uh, 
Time will tell. Um, there's no question the quotes that came out of, of that discussion, you know, one, one was on the, obviously, the Bill of Independence, the 37 people uh, <laughs> randomly drafted who, it. But, who, but, but, yeah, who are they to draft this document? Yeah, what yeah. does it apply to us? Yeah, ridiculous. Right. I saw that uh, Ben Gurion's grandson uh, introduced himself sort of like the grandson of the guy that <laughs> randomly collected 36 of the people and like casually drafted and declared the founding of the state. Uh, Yeah. So, so I think, but, but, but there were others and, you know, putting Simcha Rotman on the spot and finding all these paradoxes and in the, the, the state's position. So I think that was worth it in a sense, just, just to, to be like, wait, what, what is this all about? (laughs) What are you doing? Um, But, but, but you know the crisis is already right. It's already here, um, and uh, and 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 we we are we keep looking for for uh, sort of you know the magic magic strike. How how Netanyahu? How this government is gonna gonna uh, solve the situation? When are when are they gonna say stop? When is someone gonna say in their own voice? You know we will abide by the law. We will do what the court says. Um, which obviously you hear people, especially in the defense establishment, saying it, but we yet, we're yet to hear sort of the prime minister in his own voice saying it, um, and others in his is in his uh, cabinet um, also. And this is the you know the concerning aspect of it. Yeah, I uh, I mean I'll just say nobody really wants to venture a prediction. Either you know legal analysts or even former justices that I've spoken to don't want to actually predict uh what this supreme court will will actually decide uh by the way all 15 justices the full panel the full bench uh were in that hearing last week uh, for the first time ever in israeli history uh so again it'll it'll be interesting to see how they how they rule on on this very uh tricky issue uh you know i think a compromise or a softening of the bill if not striking it down completely is is a real possibility um I can't imagine that this particular court with this particular chief justice, Esther Hayut, uh, will, will just let it stand. Uh, although you never know, they mm-hmm. have full, full discretion. I'm maybe a bit more optimistic that the Supreme Court led by this chief justice, uh, who is, by the way, retiring next month. So this is also might be her, her last, uh, or definitely her last, uh, kind of line in the sand or swan song or whatever you want to call it. Uh, she might try to actually, prove a point or make a point to this government uh, that, yes, the Supreme Court has the power to strike down basic laws, this kind of proto-constitutional legislation that is passed by just a simple majority, by the way, uh, also ridiculous, but this is where we are. Um, And it's a question of whether she can get a a large enough majority behind her uh, to actually strike it down uh, to, again, uh, not only show that the Supreme Court has the power to do it, but that this law, uh, as it was legislated, uh, was in and of itself unconstitutional. Um, because I don't, by the way, I don't know that a narrowing or softening of this bill by the Supreme Court will actually satisfy this government. They may just choose to ignore that in and of itself, and we're still in a constitutional crisis, right? I, I agree with you. I, I don't think that will satisfy this government at all. I think I think this government is completely extreme. But the point here, to my mind, 
at least if I were Esther Chayut or anybody on the court, wouldn't be to satisfy Yariv Levin and Simcha Rodman. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, they are, they are rightly seen as radical and extreme. I think the point is to generate enough pressure from the public on the members of the government, you know, many of whom are in Likud and maybe even including Prime Minister Netanyahu, who all of a sudden seem reticent and believe that this has gone too far and that it's time to, that it's time to, put the brakes on things. So you know, if, if I were them, and maybe I'm projecting too much, but if, if I were them, I would be looking to give that faction of the government um, some power to be able to say, okay, um, we passed a reasonableness law and the court did not strike it down entirely. And, you know, so we, we have, we have a, a partial victory here and, you know, let's kind of de- <laughs> declare victory, pack up our ball and go home. Throw, throw the quote unquote moderates in this government a lifeline. Uh, maybe. Exactly. Although they haven't yet shown that they, uh, they have the courage of, of those types of convictions if they actually exist. Um, but again, we're, we're speculating. Um, so we have to kind of wait and see. And by the way, a decision isn't uh, going to be imminent. Uh, my best bet is that it'll be right after the holidays, probably uh, early to mid-October, right before uh, Esther Hayut and another uh, liberal-leading justice uh, retire due to mandatory uh, age requirements. Um, they do have until January to issue their decision, but I can't imagine this court waiting till January to issue this decision because um, it'll have severe ramifications on both the politics and uh, this government's agenda uh, once the Knesset is back in session after the holidays in October. So uh, again, we don't know, but uh, you know, we can only uh, kind of keep watching and, and hope for the best. Okay, we'll be right back after this brief message. During his visit to the U.S. this week for the U.N. General Assembly, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will be meeting in person with President Joe Biden for the first time since he returned to the premiership in late 2022. At this consequential moment for Israel's democracy and foreign relations, Israel Policy Forum has spearheaded a letter to President Biden signed by leading figures in the American Jewish community, expressing our support for efforts to broker a normalization agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia that tangibly advances prospects for a two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplow also recently penned two op-eds. One in the foreword, unpacking what Netanyahu hopes to achieve during his U.S. trip, given his domestic and international political challenges, and another in The Messenger, explaining why President Biden should insist that Netanyahu heed his wishes on Saudi normalization and other issues before granting him an Oval Office meeting. Links to our letter to President Biden and to both articles can be found in the show notes of this podcast. If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible, informational, and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today to ensure that Israel Policy Forum's work continues to have an impact. Donate now at ipf.li slash support the pod or at the support the show link in the show notes. Onwards, let's look ahead to this coming week uh, with the big news, the much anticipated and much delayed meeting uh, between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, set for this Wednesday, not as the Israeli side would have wished at the White House, but rather on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly meetings uh, in New York. Now, uh, as I mentioned in my introduction to the podcast, uh, major demonstrations by the Israeli protest movement are expected uh, against Bibi, both at the start of his trip in San Francisco and later on in New York. Um, I, I'm sure you both have seen uh, the protest movement already beaming 
these messages uh, onto the UN building, don't believe Prime Minister Netanyahu, and onto uh, Alcatraz Island, uh, dictator on the run, uh, literally beaming these messages onto uh, those landmarks. Uh, let's focus, though, on the BB Biden meeting. Uh, Michael, I know this is an issue uh, near and dear to your heart. Uh, so, uh, yes, it really is. Uh, so I guess my first question to you, how would you like to see Biden handle BB and how do you expect Biden, uh, to handle BB? First, I would like to see Biden handle BB anywhere other than Washington. So at the moment that, that seems to be the case, but I never, I never rule anything out. Um, and I don't think that, that BB has, done nearly enough to warrant an invitation to the Oval Office, given given the political benefits that confers upon him uh, and given his reticence to play ball with things that the president and the administration have requested on all sorts of fronts. So, so that's number one. How I think it uh, will play out versus, uh, versus how I think it should play out, um, I think that Biden is going to go to great lengths to uh, make it seem as if things between he he and BB are copacetic. I don't think that he wants to project any any aura of crisis or uh, or difficulty. Um, you know, so the readout the readout I'm sure will <laughs> from certainly from the Israeli side, but also from the U.S. side. Uh, I'm I'm sure will. Uh, talk about U.S. Israel friendship and unshakable and unbreakable and all of the buzzwords that we've become used to over decades. I'm sure we'll talk about security cooperation. I'm sure it will mention Iran. I'm sure it will mention efforts to integrate Israel into the region with regard to normalization. And, you know, obviously that will be a nod toward, toward the Saudi issue. And I will mm-hmm. be really surprised if it doesn't mention something about how the two men discuss the importance of democracy and, and shared values because that's going to be important for the White House to put in there. But uh, you know, I, I think uh, I think that Biden is going to go out of his way to project the idea that obviously there has been some tension, but that they're working to put things behind them. Um, what I would like to see, frankly, isn't you know isn't some sort of public spat. But what I'd like to see is the White House communicating that Netanyahu is not heeding their, their various concerns. And, you know, I'd like to see that in, in more than an oblique way. And it's not, not because there needs to be some sort of punitive approach to Netanyahu, not that, you know, he needs to be, to be punished as if, as if, you know, he's a, he's a child and, and the U.S. is an angry parent. I, I don't think that that's the case. And I don't think that's the appropriate balance in the U.S. as our relationship. But the fact is that the U.S. wants a whole bunch of things. You know, the U.S. is legitimately concerned on judicial overhaul. And we've, uh, we've had the conversation on the podcast about uh, to what extent that's, uh, you know, that's appropriate for the United States. And I don't think we have to, we have to rehash it, but um, there certainly are concerns about that, but much more so there are huge concerns about the makeup of this Israeli government, the things that it is doing on the West Bank, um, what it is or is not willing to do with regard to the Palestinian issue, what it is willing to actually give up in the context of 
an Israel-Saudi normalization deal where the United States is being asked by the Saudis to give up a whole lot. And in return, the United States is presumably going to ask the Saudis for a whole lot. And yet Israel is sitting here acting as if it doesn't have to do much of anything, as if, uh, you know, <laughs> no, 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 normalization is Magiali, right? Um, the, the Israel right. sort of just deserves exactly. it. So I think that until Netanyahu is willing to put some tangible things on the table that are not just symbolic things to which he has already agreed or that Israel is already doing, you know, confirming the status quo on the Temple Mount isn't really a concession. Um, agreeing to fulfill a bunch of things that you already promised to do uh, in Aqaba and Sharm al-Sheikh isn't a concession. Um, and they, they haven't, they done, haven't yet, done yet. Really. I mean, you know, people love the Lucy and the football metaphor, but, but we're like in absurd Lucy and football territory here where the Israeli government keeps on promising to do the same list of 13 things over and over and over again. And every, and every time, you know, the request is, please do these 13 things again. So until Netanyahu is willing to put some tangible things on the table, um, and by the way, say them publicly, you know, not just promise Biden that he'll do them and then run back home and, and disavow it and, and not actually do them, then I, I think it I, I think it would be better, frankly, for there to be some public signs of discord between the two and some public signs that, yes, the U.S. Israel relationship remains extremely important and critical and nobody wants to, to, to blow it up or damage it. Um, but public messaging from the United States that it is unhappy with Prime Minister Netanyahu and the direction of his government and that it would like to see a bunch of things from him. Um, I'm not sure that we'll get that we'll get optics and messaging that is that clear on the issue, but that's what I would like to see. Sorry, Mary, I, can I, I, I just want to, yeah. I mean, there are a few things here that I think, I mean, I agree with Michael on what he wants to see and what's realistic. And I think what's really different this time, right? Netanyahu has promised the United States to do things. He's been prime minister for a long time. Biden knows him, others have known him. He's still always got a, a sort of a West Wing meeting. What's different really is this extreme government and the real threat to the shared values concept that, that, that bonds, you know, the United States with Israel together. So that's that's the real thing. But I got to say, I mean, I think in terms of what the U.S. is signaling to BB that they're really unhappy. I mean, if you just look at those little little things, right, the, the, the announcement, uh, the U.S. announcement about the meeting, right, when you hear uh, Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, when he's announcing sort of casually that also on Wednesday, President Biden will sit down with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel to discuss a range of issues, Right. And then immediately after, immediately mm -hmm. after, and this is really like turning the blade, like, uh, you know, President Biden will then return to Washington to host President Zelensky of Ukraine here at the White House on Thursday. And this will be the third meeting at the White House. So, I mean, in the sense that signaling to Netanyahu that he's um, not wanted in Washington, I think this message is is passing and the demands from Netanyahu could be clear. But on the other hand, with everything that Michael is saying now and what um, the U.S. is doing and what they're signaling to Netanyahu, the fact is that very likely by the end of this uh, month, um, this Israeli government with those extreme uh, uh, um, elements in it is going to get the biggest gift that, or one of the biggest gifts the United States can give uh, Israel, which is a visa waiver. 
Now, the visa waiver is for Israelis. It's not a gift for Netanyahu. But the fact is, Netanyahu is going to be the bearer of these news, right? He's going to tell Israel, look, you think the the uh, United States of America is mad at me, but look what I got you. No more those crazy lines, uh, uh, standing in line for a visa or not even getting an appointment for a visa uh, to go to the United States. We're clear. So in a sense, I think that they're like, and, and not only that, right, there could be, an option that with the visa waiver and because of stars that are aligned in, in a magical way, that even without Israel making serious concessions on the Palestinian file, you know, Netanyahu is going to, the gifts that he's going to get from this administration are a visa waiver and a, and a Nobel Peace Prize for uh, peace with Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Muslim and Arab world, minus the Palestinians. So, I mean, in a sense, there's what the administration says and signals and i think that's that's painful to some people uh but there's also the actual actions in terms of the protest movement it's just interesting that i just heard you know we have the beaming of of uh, messages on on famous buildings but i just heard that they're asking some uh you know the brothers in arm uh, brothers and sisters and uh, brothers and sisters in arm uh group are trying to um attempt uh different f- former uh navy uh, officers uh, to fly to New York to participate in a flotilla at the Hudson. They need a skipper license. Yeah, <laughs> it's really okay. uh, quite quite creative in terms of what's uh, planned uh, uh, forward. Um, and maybe just the last comment of this: I, I don't know if the administration, I don't know if the president would have liked to host uh, Netanyahu in the White House. Uh, I know there were certain groups in the U.S advocating forcibly against it and and maybe they didn't want uh, protests in front of the White House although they're probably accustomed to this but I think part of the part of the um, a big part of the failure was on on the prime minister's side because uh, for a long time his people insisted that he was invited to the White House right you heard it from Sahi Anegbi, the national security advisor by the way it's the same uh, Netanyahu envoy that promises things to the Palestinians Okay, so it's not even the thing himself, but but um, and then even even yesterday, or we heard this denial that actually the administration offered Netanyahu an option to come to the White House, but the dates were uh, inconvenient. One date was this uh, Jewish fest, um, the Song Italia, uh, and he can't do it. And another okay. one was uh, on a different date, and of course the Song Italia is the one that when he. Um, and say I cannot meet with Biden is when he's meeting with Elon Musk at the same time. So it's not for religious reasons. So I think uh, a lot of this it's also at the at his own doing, um, upsetting the Biden right. administration, insisting instead of just like lowering the head and, and being thankful for the sideline, you know, you and GA uh, meeting. And look, I on that point, Netanyahu, like we said, including travel days, um, He's going to be in America for between six to eight days. It's unclear how he's going to fill the time uh, in the middle uh, in New York. I'm sure he he and uh, his traveling partner, uh, Sarah Netanyahu, will find very creative ways uh, well, to well, fill Mary, their time. Think, think, think about but how I, many different laundromats there are in New York. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, no comment. But um, – but no, it, it is remarkable. It's not, you know, it's obviously a very intentional uh, decision by the White House, uh, probably the correct decision uh, to have 
the president meet with the prime minister on the sidelines of the UNGA and not have this uh, this uh, more ceremonial meeting at the White House. Uh, I think that's all for the good. Um, I do think if we look back or think back to uh, what was it last summer when Biden visited Israel uh, during the interim uh, Lapid government and uh, it was uncoordinated and it was unplanned, but Biden went up to Netanyahu sitting in the, in the bleachers on the tarmac of Ben Gurion airport and uh, warmly embraced him. Uh, he, Netanyahu was uh, the first the first person that uh, Biden shook hands with because uh, I think back then there was a COVID protocol. He was just fist bumping initially, and then he started embracing people. Uh, and that was a huge deal domestically in Israel. Netanyahu immediately after that embrace and that handshake, very warm with his old friend Joe Biden, uh, went to the media and the cameras at Ben Gurion and said, you know, look, this is a, a sign of our uh, very close friendship. And again, it didn't sway the election that came a few months later, but it certainly didn't help, didn't harm rather Netanyahu. And so whatever happens, whatever comes out of this meeting uh, between Biden and Bibi on Wednesday, uh, people that are planning it and choreographing it need to be very aware of how it's going to be used domestically in Israel during this very delicate and fraught time. Uh, that would be my my two cents. Um, Michael, on the issue of protests, uh, since this is uh, your home turf, uh, both in New York and, by the way, San Francisco, as we mentioned, uh, I guess we also have to wait and see how large and widespread the protests are. Uh, my sense is that there will be both. Um, but what is the sentiment right now in the American Jewish community uh, regarding this visit by this Israeli prime minister to the U.S. Uh, at this current moment in time? What's the, what's the vibe? It's pretty fascinating because the protests, uh, as you guys know, and as presumably listeners know, are organized and, and led and in, in, in every way driven by Israeli expats in the United States. Um, and so it's not, it's not really a homegrown American Jewish protest movement against the prime minister. It's an Israeli protest movement against the prime minister. And I think that um, American Jews are, aren't quite—they're they're not quite—they're not quite sure how to deal with it, um, because obviously they are not accustomed to even if they don't like Israeli prime ministers. And Netanyahu is deeply unpopular with many American Jews and has been for a long time. We are still, as American Jews, not accustomed to protesting Israeli prime ministers when they're when they're here in the United States. Um, or you know, treating them as anything other than other than visiting dignitaries um, and, and according them respect as as Israeli prime ministers. So I think this is unusual for a lot of American Jews and for American Jewish organizations as well. You know, there have been all sorts of statements over the past nine ten months about the judicial overhaul, about policies in the West Bank. You know, all all, all the things that American Jews are frustrated about with regard to Israeli policy. Um, but that doesn't necessarily translate, I think, for a lot of American Jewish institutions as saying, you know, we should, we should go out and, and boycott the prime minister. Um, or, you know, we should, we should insist that, uh, that, that the president or members of Congress don't meet with him. You know, that's, that's a, a much farther bridge. And so, you know, just, just as a, as an observer here, as an analyst, it's been really fascinating to me, to watch the way in which Israelis here are driving this um, and are so out in front of this as compared to American Jews. And particularly when you just think about the, the history of 
Um, Netanyahu is much more popular in Israel than he is historically than he is in the United States because of the, the very different politics of Israeli Jews and American Jews. And yet here we are in the United States and he's being, he's being hounded everywhere, but it's by Israelis. So, uh, you know, I just, I, I find this, I find this entire thing, this entire thing fascinating. And by the way, it's not just, it's not just Netanyahu. You know, there was a famous incident a few months ago with Simcha Rotman, um, you know, grabbing a megaphone uh, from a protester on a, on a Shabbat evening and a police report being filed. That was also, you know, an Israeli who was following him around, not an American Jew. So, um, it's it's just uh, people people talk all the time about how American Jews' relationship to Israel isn't actually about Israel. Um, it's about you know uh, American Jewish identity and American Judaism and kind of using our own divisions um, and having them play out uh, against an Israeli canvas. And you know <laughs> here we are with with Israelis in the United States um, who are using uh, what's going on in Israel. Uh, and, and playing it out on the on the canvas here. So uh, I just I find I don't know that I have anything particularly smart or insightful to say about it, but I just I find it endlessly fascinating. And to what extent have American Jews actually embraced the Israeli protest movement? I guess is people's question, looking from afar. Yeah. So I mean, there there it's um, I, the, the numbers of American Jews that I've seen so far who are joining this protest movement are, are not huge. They're, they're, they're smaller than you'd expect. Again, smaller than you'd expect given, given Prime Minister Netanyahu's unpopularity here. Um, and I just, I, I think there's still, I think there's still a lot of discomfort. Um, and this dates back decades among American Jews to, to publicly, to publicly protest an Israeli prime minister or, you know, portray prime minister in any way is illegitimate. And let's not forget these, these protests that are taking place in the United States being led by Israelis. They're not, they're, they're, they're very Israeli, right? They're not, they're not focusing on kind of differences in policy, right? It's projecting, projecting on the UN, you know, a slogan calling him the crime minister. That's just not something you, you hear from American Jews, right? Um, or projecting on Alcatraz, you know, a, a snarky message about how, how he belongs in jail. Um, that's just, it's just the the sort of uh, the, the the level of like dubli chutzpah that that we expect from Israelis, and that is and is a lot more normal in Israel, is still foreign to American Jews. And so I think that that in in some ways that also that explains part of it, right? Um, I think for many American Jews, a, a lot of the protests just don't 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 seem in their cultural cultural milieu, right? It, there's still some sense of discomfort about it. Yeah. It's an internal Israeli conversation. Sorry, Shira, I no, cut no, you off. No, I mean, I think, I think Michael is correct. And, you know, the fact is just American Jews are way more polite. And, um, and, 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 and really the, 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 the goal of, of big part, you know, the protesters really to troll uh, this government, to drive them crazy. Uh, so in a sense, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, Gila Gamaliel, who is a minister, minister for intelligence affairs, uh, Rumor has it that, you know, she's done with the protest and she's moving out of Tel Aviv. <laughs> These people say, oh, you know, what, what you okay. live here in the heart of our liberal, you know, safe haven. There are protests around our house every day. There are protests at the entrance to our kids' schools, right? So apparently, um, you know, the, this is seen as a success. I think this is the one thing, if we can frame it positively, you see I'm all about optimism in this new year, Um is that what yes. Israelis saying, you know, Israelis were born into a democracy. And this behavior, 
this uh, temperament, this idea of, um, you know, I don't want to say disrespect, but the idea is that, you know, a prime minister, crime minister, no one is above the law. Uh, we treat you, our elected officials, as, as you know, as equals. Um, this is what is going to protect Israel from, from the slippery slope that other countries have gone, you know, for like the Hungary case or Turkey or Poland, because this is the character and nature of the Israelis. Um, so, so maybe it's a sort of a defense mechanism also. Yeah. And um, I mean, look, it, it also depends on, I guess, the own personal political position of each American Jew and whether they feel uh, as connected to Israel and the politics in Israel um, or not, right? But uh, I'd argue that if you are at all uh, connected to Israel and events in Israel and the future of Israel, this may be a good opportunity to uh, go and make your voices heard. And, uh, you know, you may not be able to uh, to go out on Kaplan Street in Tel Aviv every Saturday night, but you can definitely take to uh, Midtown Manhattan uh, in the coming days. Um, final issue, uh, which could be a podcast unto itself, but I wanted to pose to both of you uh, the big news, obviously, that we alluded to, a potential normalization deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, brokered by the Biden administration, and involving what has come to be called, potentially, a significant Palestinian component. Um, I know you two follow this issue very closely, and so I wanted to check in for a state of play uh, as you both see it, and to try to answer the big question on everyone's mind, Will this highly complicated and uh, very difficult four-way deal uh, actually materialize or not? Uh, so, Shira, let's start with you. What's the latest you're hearing, uh, or what's your sense of where things stand with regard to a potential uh, Saudi deal? You know, we've been talking about this for uh, a number of months now, and I think as time passes, um, this looks like something that... Um, all sides want more than we had thought uh, previously. And when you have the gravitas of, 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 of leaders, right, you have better chances of actually uh, achieving something and sealing an agreement. And for a variety of reasons, you know, uh, the, the President Biden wants, wants a foreign policy achievement. They have their interests vis-a-vis Saudi, uh, pulling them away from the China orbit, outdoing Trump. Um, uh, 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 Saudi Arabia allegedly understanding that it's in in their interests that it happens under um, a democratic administration because this way they can get their Republican support uh, without you know and and if if it's next administration who knows if they can get uh, something close to what they're asking uh, for democratic support Demo- yeah democratic support uh, which they would not get if right. it's a uh, you know. Trump is back in the, the White House. Um, so, so or definitely not uh, at the levels they're hoping to get um, at, at, at the moment. And if um, Saudi really wants a defense treaty, this is something that requires a special majority of uh, 67 in the Senate. So you need, you need uh, not only Republicans, you need also Democrats, and you need more uh, Democrats than this. And I think this also goes to the point of what you uh, mentioned before, that Israel sort of, or M- Michael mentioned, it's sort of like Israel just uh, uh, sits there, awaits for, for the, for the, for the uh, rewards, for the trophy of peace without doing anything in Israel, there's this uh, perception that 
not only they will uh, benefit from from uh, Saudi normalization, that not only they don't need to do anything, that Israel is essential for the deal to uh, get the Republican support. So I think there's there's truth to that, but but. Um, but all these pieces could fall together. There is something that I think at IPF we're encouraged by that we're starting to hear more and more um, this uh, uh, notion, what you just mentioned, uh, Neri, that the Palestinian, a meaningful Palestinian component, and meaningful is an elusive term, we can interpret it in different ways, but th that a meaningful uh, Palestinian component would have to be part of this deal. Um, there are different signals and reports from Riyadh and then denial, um, and there are um, uh, statements by Israeli politicians saying one thing and then the other in terms of the levels of concessions, but there's no question that the Palestinian um, part of this has become much more integrated in the conversation. I think also by people in the administration that may have other priorities, but understand that this is needed, needed for uh, domestic support at home by, by Democrats, that uh, this is uh, you know, a bitter pill to swallow if it's just defense treaty, more arms, <laughs> and nuclear enrichment on Saudi soil, right? And with this Israeli government, um, but advancing the peace process, or at least uh, keeping the window open for a two-state solution, could be could be a major benefit. That really uh, Saudi Arabia has leverage in ways that maybe we don't know what's what's going to be the next leverage if this is gone and not uh, and not uh, uh, utilized. So I think there's growing understanding. And the the most recent report I just read uh, an hour ago is that um, Saudi Arabia is going to lead in New York in the silence of the UN uh, a meeting with uh, 25 other ministers of foreign affairs from a variety of, of countries and different representations uh, calling for uh, uh, advancing the two-state solution, something along the lines of the Arab Peace Initiative. So you're seeing more and more okay. uh, signals from, uh, it's just a new report now, but uh, more and more reports that uh, signaling that this is something that Saudi, whether it's the top priority of their leadership or not, we can discuss it, but that this needs to be a part of what they're asking. The U.S. want to make sh also want to make sure that this is what they're asking. Of course, any meaningful Palestinian component in a deal is not something that this Israeli government is able to even entertain, right? Um, I the 13 mm -hmm. sort of commitments, but, but, but I mean, really, we're not, we're talking about like armored vehicles uh, creating an uproar. So, so uh, nothing meaningful this, this uh, government can entertain. And then the question is, can you square the circle? Can you bring the Israeli government uh, or Netanyahu himself to a point of decision? Uh, Continuing this government or progressing with a deal, uh, but but putting his um, political future in uh, you know to put it in danger. There, there are different scenarios that we can play this out, but uh, it's not that easy. Uh, so in a sense, um, I don't want to do predictions, uh, but we are coming down to sort of the money time, right? What are what is everyone asking for, and uh, who can deliver? Right and. Michael, on that point, uh, both the issue of, say, a meaningful or significant Palestinian component and also the ability of this 
Israeli government to actually deliver anything significant on the Palestinian side. Uh, as Sira, Shira rightfully alluded to uh, last week, there was a huge uproar by Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betzal Smotrich about the transfer of eight uh, semi-armored vehicles to the Palestinian Authority. So you can imagine what the response will be if, uh, say, Israel is uh, told to transfer some West Bank land to Palestinian Authority control, right? Precisely. And to, to connect this back to what we were talking about earlier with the Biden media meeting, I think that when it comes to the issue of normalization and what Israel is willing to give on the Palestinian front, it's, you know, Biden's got to ask, got to ask Bibi to, to put up or shut up. Right. Um, you know, the, despite the fact that it's pretty clear, as Martin Indyk pointed out uh, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, pretty clear that Biden wants this. Um, if, you know, all you have to do is look at the, the endless stream of high-level American officials who have been traveling to Saudi Arabia recently. Uh, obviously, Netanyahu wants this, and you know, the Saudis are signaling they want it as well. Um, there's obviously a lot of motivation to get something, but this difficulty where how do you square this circle? On the one hand, the Saudis are increasingly messaging publicly that they aren't going to just back down completely on the Palestinian issue in, in the way that Netanyahu has been suggesting that they might. You know, Shira, Shira mentioned this meeting that the Saudis are organizing this week at the UN uh, on, you know, a renewal of the peace process, a meeting, by the way, to which um, neither the Israeli nor, Palestine, nor Palestinian delegations were invited, uh, which is also interesting. <laughs> um, that is, yes. that is interesting. Uh, and then there was this report in a Saudi newspaper over the weekend, which had this also weird circuitous sourcing where, you know, it's a Saudi newspaper saying that um, that they have heard from an Israeli source who was, who was informed by an American source that the Saudis have suspended normalization talks because of the Israeli government's unwillingness or inability to do anything on the Palestinian front. Um, you know, it's unclear to what extent that report is is accurate reporting. Uh, the State Department tweeted this morning that the you know the, the U.S. remains committed to furthering Israel's regional integration, including through active diplomacy aimed at Israel Saudi normalization. Talks are ongoing, and we look forward to further conversations with both parties. So, you know, that's the State Department Twitter account seemingly uh, seemingly pushing back on this report because uh, it explicitly says talks are ongoing, mm-hmm. and the report was that talks have been suspended. Um, but the fact that this was in a Saudi paper says to me that the Saudis are are trying to, in in this way as well, publicly message that they will they will need something significant, whatever that ends up looking like, on the Palestinian front. And you know when when Smotrich and Benkvir and others are going wild over uh, the the transfer of eight semi armored vehicles to the PA, which by the way are not they're not new. These these are replacements for for 15-year-old vehicles that the PA already had. Um, and by the way, you know, when the Israeli government goes on and on about how the PA has to take responsibility in, in Janine and Nablus, and if they won't do it, then Israel is going to be forced to act. And yet, you know, the Israeli government then turns around and creates this firestorm over the transfer of replacement semi-armored vehicles, as if the PA is supposed to fight these guys in Janine and Nablus with, uh, I don't know, like, you know, sticks and slingshots. Um, you know, the, the whole thing is just absurd theater, but, you know, when, when you have this controversy over semi-armored vehicles that the PA uses against 
Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and other militias, the idea that then this government is going to turn around and approve something real, just it's, it seems it seems impossible to square this circle. So, um, you know, you, you asked, you asked to what extent normalization is likely. I, I think that lots of people are motivated, but it seems like this is getting harder by the day, given all of the political constraints. And Shira, again, focusing on the Israeli political angle to potential Saudi deal, uh, the notion put forward, uh, by our friend Tom Friedman last week in an IPF webinar and, and others that, the mere introduction of this kind of Saudi deal, this grand bargain, will in and of itself, according to Tom Friedman, hopefully blow up this current far-right Israeli government and will force Bibi to, I guess, look for more centrist partners like like Benny Gantz, and this will be a big recalibration of, of Israeli politics and will also solve the judicial overhaul issue. I mean, how realistic is that scenario? I'm highly skeptical for a number of reasons, but what yeah, do you think? Yeah, and the war in Ukraine and bring peace on Earth. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. I think there are some people, I dare to say, uh, I'm convinced also the, in the administration that can see this. And um, Yair Lapid had an interesting, uh, you know, obviously the head of the opposition uh, had an interesting interview uh, over the holiday weekend in which he does acknowledge that U.S. officials have approached him to ask sort of would he enter the government, so right replacing this coalition. Um, I'm, I'll talk about Benny Gantz in a moment. Uh, and, and he said no. And, and he said no, not even for peace with Saudi Arabia. Um, Benny mm-hmm. Gantz, uh, I can say now, he said it to IPF on a private meeting, but then he reiterated this position also publicly that he would not enter and as in the house government also, not even for peace with Saudi Arabia, you know, who knows at the end, but, but, but that would not be, um, not be their choice. And also in terms of his political, it would be political suicide, especially when all polling shows that he is very likely to be next prime minister. Uh, Although I'd, I'd, I'd stress here that the who knows in the end, because, you know, getting on to political decisions. You never know what he's going to do. Right. But Benny Gantz did say this, and I think uh, Yair Lapid would say that Yair Lapid takes a little bit of a different position on the nuclear um, um, enrichment. And we can have a whole podcast about, you know, the Saudi asks from the U.S., from the U.S., which I think are interesting in their own right and don't have. And also and also difficult to, you know, we're, we're only focusing on the Palestinian kind of Israeli political angle, but the Saudi asks in and of themselves are, are a huge lift as well. The Saudi asks are a huge lift that would create a nuclear arms, uh, arms race in the Middle East, would um, uh, erode Israel's uh, qualitative military edge. And I'm asking, as you know, I'm asking uh, Americans if your if the objective is to focus on the great power competition, right? Um, is defense treaty with a Middle Eastern country the way to <laughs> get out of the Middle East? Extricate yourself not, from the I'm Middle not sure. East. Yes. I, I just, maybe I'm missing something. But anyway, these are, these are bigger questions. So Yair Lapid goes against the nuclear stuff, but there is a way sort of, and, and I, I have reservations about that also, but Benny Gantz can say, Neri Lapid, we are doing what's best for the country. And what's best for the country is um, uh, normalization and peace treaty with Saudi Arabia. And for that, we will support Netanyahu from the outside. It does not mean that anything that Netanyahu will have to bring about this agreement will require a Knesset vote. But if his coalition partners leave the government and vote, right, um, uh, uh, 
uh, vote to uh, uh, topple the government, um, the opposition parties, the Eshetid and uh, Benny Gantz, will basically uh, not vote together with with uh, Netanyahu's current coalition partners. So in a sense, if you have a very narrow government of Netanyahu and the Haredi parties who will not leave uh, this coalition, with the outside support of uh, Lapid and Gantz, uh, presumably uh, Netanyahu can... Uh, um, make the choice of uh, continuing with, with this agreement with all it, all it entails on the Palestinian front, but that will be the day after the agreement, his government will fall. And where this gets him and what does it mean about, you know, there's there's a trial, he's supposed to be on the witness stand some some sometime during the spring, uh, April, uh, reportedly he doesn't want to go on the witness stand, what this all means and if he, if this, uh, peace deal gets him some sort of a plea bargain and uh, probably not the exoneration that he would like uh, and gets him out of the political system. I think it's something that a lot of people are entertaining. Um, I'm not sure how it can actually uh, work in practice, but I think this is the position that you're hearing from the, the parties inside Israel. And I think therein lies the rub that what does it mean supporting from the outside that you know, yes, you can put uh, any Saudi deal to a Knesset vote. Sure, they'll they'll support that. Uh, Netanyahu, even without Smotrich and Benver, can probably pass any kind of deal, even with Palestinian concessions in the cabinet, right? But then the real danger for him is that if Benver and Smotrich actually bolt the government, in which case he won't have a majority in parliament. And I don't see how Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid uh, keep voting for, for this coalition and Netanyahu as prime minister uh, on random bills here and there or whatever comes down the pike, like you said, the day after a Saudi deal. So I don't, I don't quite know from a technical point of view what supporting from the outside means. I don't know why Netanyahu himself would, uh, I mean, he's smart enough to know that that promise isn't worth uh, isn't worth anything. It's almost like he gave that promise uh, to to a different uh, prime minister, but um, but yeah. So I, I I don't I don't see this kind of hypothesis that this will be the big bang to take down this far right Israeli government through the Saudi deal will actually materialize. Um, Although Neri, I think there there again, there is a world yeah. there is a world in which Gantz Lapid whoever vote for a Saudi deal. Um, and Netanyahu takes the chance that the Saudi deal is so popular with the Israeli public that it means Likud bounces back in the polls and then he can risk elections without without his uh, extremist far-right partners. Um, I'm not saying this is like likely, but uh, but I, I can see I can see the logic from Netanyahu's point. you know if if you actually are looking to do a Saudi deal and you are looking for an excuse to get rid of Garrett of Smotrich and Benvir, um, you know, you see it through and then you try to ride its popularity to a better election result. Maybe. Um, given current poll numbers, uh, it would be a huge gamble from BB. Uh, you know, the one scenario, uh, again, I don't know how likely it is, is that Netanyahu finalizes the Saudi deal. Ben and Smotrich do whatever they want. Uh, and then BB uses this as kind of a legacy move. Uh, he knows maybe in his own mind that after he finalizes this deal, uh, that he's not going to run for re-election and a plea deal like that was on the table, what, 18 months ago would still be on the table tomorrow. 
essentially leave the political scene for X number of years and the trial and then, you know, the, the indictments are, are closed. Uh, he pays a fine or whatever, but no jail time. That deal is, is on the table. So it's only, it's only a real question whether Netanyahu himself, uh, just views this as a legacy move and that he himself knows that he's not running for re-election again. And then he'll let uh, Yariv Levine and Likud and Ben Gvir and Smotrich uh, fight it out against Benny Gantz and Lapid and the rest uh, in any future election. But again, I don't, I don't see any sign that Netanyahu wants to, to end his political career just yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Um, the, <laughs> the guy, the guy who stood at the airport before getting on the plane to the United States and compared the protesters to the PLO in Iran doesn't sound like a guy who uh, <laughs> who's ready to step away. I don't think so either. Uh, Shira? Right. But, but, but there is, you know, there is, there is a court case. There's still, there's still a court in Israel. There's still a law. There's still, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I must admit that when I heard that this is the first time, and I think I was with Michael when I heard it the first time, I thought this was so ridiculous. But... <sighs> Heard I mean, what the this first whole time. plan, right? This idea that this will sort of will be Saudi Arabia and this will be the end of the political current Netanyahu, and then he gets off with with some sort of a deal, um, and 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 Israel goes back to some sort of normalcy. I don't think it's normalcy, but some sort of normalcy. But 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 who knows? It might be the only way out of this. Possibly as a kind of a swan song for Netanyahu, a Saudi deal. Again, um, I don't, I don't quite see it. Uh, but as we know from Netanyahu, uh, I don't think he himself has decided right. He's going to see what's possible. So, you know, in his mind, he's probably continuing to fight against the Supreme Court and against the protesters and against the reservists and against the majority of his public and against uh, everybody. While at the same time, uh, like we've seen, you know, giving hints about uh, broad compromise, consensus, Saudi deal, um, and all the other things uh, remains to be seen. Um, we've gone over, but I think in a good way. Um, but there's a lot more to, to talk about in future. Uh, and we'll see how this week goes, uh, especially in New York, where all eyes will be focused on. So, uh, Michael Shira. Shana uh, Tova, Gma Tova coming up. May it be a, a meaningful fast if you are fasting. Uh, and uh, hope to see you uh, after, after the holidays, as I say here in Israel. Thanks, Neri. Thanks, Shira. Thank you. Khatima Tova. Okay. Thanks again to Michael Koplow and Shira Efron, as always, for their generous time and insights. Also, a special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a rating. That always helps. And as always, thank you for listening and have a healthy and happy upcoming Hagim and especially Gmal Chatimatova for the upcoming Yom Kippur.